So welcome, Dusty, and uh, the meeting is yours. There's no time oh, limit and no topic off limit. It's yours to do with as you please. Yeah, well, um, hey, everybody, I'm Dusty, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, hey, Dusty. Yeah, again, thanks for, um, for asking me to join, uh, Donna. I am a little bit, I'm still drinking coffee, so you guys, please bear with me. Um, but I guess for starters, my sobriety date um, is April 6th of 2005. I actually came into the rooms in um, December of 2000 originally but I wasn't ready at that point in time and I'll get to that. But, um, but just a little bit to qualify myself for why I'm able to sit here and, and feel good to share my story, I guess. Um, alcohol was always a part of my life. I was cutting teeth on bourbon. So that's when it started um, for the most part, not that I was, ingesting alcohol a lot when I was an infant, but um, I was introduced to it very early on. I, I grew up in a, in a home that, it was a loving home, but I had a very uh, active alcoholic father. Um, and let's just say that, that alcohol was um, very much accepted in the environment that I grew up in, and it was expected that you partake in it. Um, if you didn't, there was something wrong with you. Um, I remember my father used to make, uh, my brother and I, wine coolers, for lack of better terms, Manischewitz wine and 7-Up on Friday nights. It was like the treat, right? And I mean, I wasn't, I might have been 10 years old. Um, but that was acceptable to them. It never really dawned on me that, you know, well, actually, I, let, me, let me back up a bit. I remember when I was young, my mother used to give me paragoric. I don't know if folks know what paragoric is, but I used to have what the doc called, um, well, I had a lot of abdominal problems early when I was younger. And um, I think that the doc was figuring that it was more like nerves for whatever reason. I don't know what the hell that was all about, but I just remember my mother used to give me teaspoons or so of paragoric. And I kind of started liking that. I started looking forward to uh, getting some of that paragoric. But anyway, you know, drugs are a big part of my problem um, or my story. And I know that this is an AA meeting, but, uh, I like to say that my drug of choice is more because I found that I used, uh, as the literature references, people, places, and things in excess um, to fill a hole in the soul. And I never really realized um, how big that hole was or even that it really was there until I actually hit a bottom in April of 05. But... Um, Alcoholism is definitely, I think, well, any, any addiction, I came to believe that, I, that it's a disease of self for the most part. Um, a lot of insecurities, I think, feed not just alcoholism, but any addiction in my book I have found because I have many addictions. Um, but I think that the thing that 
that I'd like to really just say from my experience after these on this 17 year journey up to this point is that when I was growing up, drinking and drugging, being promiscuous, it was all just what we did back then. You know, it was it was part of growing up, number one. Number two, it was um, I never really felt a need to fit into any crowd. Um, I ran track and field when I was younger in um, started out in elementary school. And on I don't know if you guys remember having to do for those of you here in the States. I don't know how many folks are out of the States, but they used to have the presidential physical fitness award where you'd run certain distances and jump certain distances and throw a softball. That was kind of my introduction to um, athletics, if you will. And that was probably in fourth or fifth grade. But um, I actually ran, ran track and field all through high school and went to college on a full scholarship on track and field. So getting attention was not something that I was really um, lacking because I was, I, I had a gift uh, to run the scholarship that I, I did get a full scholarship to college. I had an objective to try to work towards my plan was when I got out of high school was to go to college and try and train to be able to try out for the Olympics. Um, Hopefully to run in a, I graduated from high school in 1976 and um, I wanted to run I was looking to try and run in the 80 games. That was my driver when I was 15 and over um, until I left, until I left college. But so high school years were pretty normal. I was all about fun. There wasn't a day in high school that went by that I wasn't stoned to the bone, Um, but I was always drinking. And I really never got into any of the other dry goods until I left um, home when I was 17 and went to college. Um, And that was because of the household that I grew up in. Alcohol was accepted, so I was able to do that. Um, Drugs were definitely frowned upon. And um, it was just something that I learned how to um, use, but, and recreationally then, um, (laughs) in excess recreationally. but it was not, I never, I never got in trouble, put it that way. When I was growing up, um, I was never, I was never arrested. I learned real quick how to uh, avoid the police, how to avoid our local uh, motorcycle enthusiast group, if you will. Um, the development that I grew up in in Falls Church was uh, a very transient development. Um, it's right outside of Washington, D.C. And um it was also a very good environment to grow up in because I learned a lot of street smarts. Um, and I actually, that's how I learned to run so fast and to actually run hurdles. Um, cause that was my forte was running high and intermediate hurdles. And I came to believe that the reason that I got so good at that was because they had these chain link fences in the development that I grew up in. And in order to get away from trouble quickly, I learned how to step over these fences um and it just it was a gift really and the one thing that did take some some um getting used to was clotheslines at night 
Um, because if you didn't know where the clotheslines were when you came off a, off a fence, I've been hooked by many clotheslines growing up, and dogs. You had to know where the dogs were uh, in the yards. But that's, you know, I mean, that, that I think is why I learned how to, um, that's where those instincts started coming from, to be able to learn how to run and jump. But I went through um, high school pretty much uneventful. It was not a, no big deal. Went to college. Um, that's where I started getting into uh, my objective in school was, like I said, to try to train to try and get into tryout for the 1980 Olympics. So I, I went to school, everything paid for, and I was recruited nationwide. So I had an op- I had the choice of going just about anywhere I wanted to. Um, and I chose to go to Pocatello, Idaho, uh, even after I had a full offer from the um, University of Oregon in Eugene, which is the track capital of the nation. But um, I guess those, that's kind of when all the, the, the alcoholic type thinking and behavior started really to show up because I chose not to go to, to Eugene, Oregon, because I didn't want to run in the rain and in the snow because I just couldn't see myself working out um, when it was snowing outside, you know, and, and the facility at Idaho state had a, um, they had just built a 12,000 seat mini dome. So, and at the time too, it was the only college in the, uh, the only university in the nation that had a full Nautilus weight training facility. So that was a big driver for me. Um, being able to train indoors with the latest and greatest um, weight facilities, as well as the coaching staff that was there. The, the coach that was there was, he had connections to the Olympics um, committee, to the Olympic organization. Um, and he had a good record for the, for the um, Big Sky Conference. Actually, he had won 12 13 of the past 15 conferences when I went out there conference meets and it was a worldwide recruiting um, team. I mean, I had guys, there was an individual that my freshman year in college that uh, was actually in the finals of the hundred, 200 meters uh, in the 76 games that um, did not get to participate because he was running for his home country of Ghana, West Africa. And, um, the African nations pulled out for apartheid to boycott. So, you know, here, here he is kind of, and that was kind of my first, I was, I always remember having this conversation with him saying, you know, that would really piss me off, you know, if I was doing something like that, but moving ahead, um, there was a lot of partying in in college, even with the running. Um, I ran some of my best 400 meter hurdle races stone to the bone. Um, and folks don't understand how they go, how do you do that? And, um, it's, it's like I said, it was just what I did, what we did, what I did. It's, I was able to, it's kind of like, I hear folks say that, well, I considered myself one too, a functioning alcoholic, you know, you can do some really good stuff once you get your muscle memory and mind into it and becomes instinctive. Um, I mean, hell we operate in blackouts for Christ's sakes. Um, some folks can do some pretty amazing things in blackouts, uh, but getting ahead of myself there, not that I had blackouts, redouts were one of my things. I I was a very angry individual when I came into the rooms, but, um, you know, I think all, all of that was fun when I started out and, um, 
college frat, you know, fraternity parties. And I do remember though, that there is a fraternity called the Teaks. And um, I always sought that frat house out because they drank the most when I was in college. And um, I think they, they still do to this day. There's a lot of fraternities and sororities that do that, but the Teaks had a real good reputation for uh, hard partiers. And that I was attracted to that back then. Um, but anyway, I, I didn't finish college um, because I ended up getting married my freshman year of college and also becoming a father. Um, and as things progressed through school, I was carrying minimum credits because I didn't, like I said, my main objective was just to party and, and run. I wasn't there to get an education. So I was carrying 12 credits and you had to have 12 credits to be eligible to run. And uh, I ended up failing my algebra class, which was four of the 12 credits. <laughs> so needless to say, I wasn't able to compete for that year or that semester. And I stayed out at school um, to do what they call red shirt for a year. And um, I got a job in the summertime, stayed out in Pocatello and had a baby and had the baby and, and my first wife. Um, my coach, the coach that I went out there to run under ended up taking a, a job at Colorado Spring, down in Colorado Springs um, at the Olympic testing and training facility as a head trainer and assistant facility manager. And he asked for a leave of absence from um, the college that I was at and the athletics director denied that. So he left. And when he left and then when I failed my algebra class and I redshirted that year, the coach that they brought in was just not somebody that I wanted to train under because I didn't think that he really had what I was looking for. And I started getting caught up, caught up in the real life situations at that point. I mean, being with a, having a, um, a baby and being married, um, you know, there were, there were different priorities at the time. Um, none necessarily that, that I was willing to run away from or shuck, but ones too that, um, kind of, you know, I put myself in that position, put it that way. So I was, I was raised to take care of your own. Um, you make your bed, you lie in it. Don't let them see you sweat. You don't need to be asking for help because, you know, you need, you, that's a sign of weakness for lack of better terms. So I was raised on a belief that, you know, you pretty much had to be, um, self-sufficient and, um, you know, I, I remember distinctively my father always saying, you know, what the neighbors think of us, I don't give a damn, you know, but what we really had was a facade because outside, everybody looking at the house that I grew up in thought that it was a really great place when in fact it was pretty dysfunctional, you know, but we learned how to hide that dysfunction and that just carried over into my being deceptive and um, learning how to get what I want when I want it, the way I want it. Um, and learning the stuff from the streets when I grew up in the development that I grew up in. Um, those kinds of things started adding to all the isms that really ended up taking me down. And um, I remember coming in, the two significant things in my life that actually got me to a point where I really needed to stop and look at and accept the fact that I had a problem was the loss of both of my parents. Um, and a relation and relationships. I mean, not only a relationship with myself, but relationships with 
uh, my spouses. Because I, like I said, I've been married twice. My first marriage, I considered um, <laughs> it's like an experiment. Um, the only thing good that came out of it was my oldest son. Um, but, you know, we were young and um, we both had our own um, dependencies, for lack of better terms. And, um, you know, drinking and drugging was always um, an ongoing thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. But um, I ended up getting divorced from my first wife. I got married on January 1st, New Year's Day. There's another alcoholic kind of behavior. Yeah, let's start the year out right. Get married on New Year's Day um, of 1978. And I was divorced by 82. Um, and then I remarried in 85. And the gal that I remarried in 85 was, you know, she's, she was a sweetheart. Um, and we were together. That relationship was about 25 years, but we were always, um, during that 25 year relationship, um, alcohol was always a part of that. And, uh, we ended up having four kids together and that, that started to really, um, shine a light on on some of the isms that I had in terms of my codependencies, my um, wanting to really focus on. I, I always thought that, and to this day, I still do. Relationships are really important, but I found that the kinds of relationships that I had were, they were, for the most part, um, shallow. I mean, the one, the, when I was married to my wife, I was, I was very close and I thought that that was it. I considered her a soulmate. And she always looked at me and said, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I, I you know, I'm not, I don't think that. And I'm, you know, that kind of like, I was like, really? Um, but with the kids, as the more that we had kids, the further we started going, drifting apart. And we started drifting apart, I really think, not just because of the kids, but the priorities are shifting. I was working shift work. Um trying to raise kids, made a decision for her to stay home and, and raise the kids as opposed to having the two-parent working thing because then you're just paying somebody to raise your kids and you're not getting ahead because you, it's really not cost-effective to do that, especially when you have as many kids as I do. I, I have six kids, by the way, um, five of which are my own. Um, and I did take in my first wife's half-brother when he was nine years old. Um, because his family was pretty dysfunctional too. And he didn't, he, his father was going through a divorce and he called one day and said, uh, do you mind if uh, Michael comes down and stays with you for the summer? And this was with myself and my first wife. Um, and I said, no, that's not a problem. But long story short, he never came back to getting. Um, and I told Michael that <clears throat> when he was nine years old, he'd been in like eight different homes when he showed up at my place. And I told him that, you know, as far as I was concerned, you have a roof over your head until you're old enough to take care of yourself. And I kept that commitment to him. Um, but that's the kind, that's the way I was brought up. I mean, that was, you take care of your own, you know? And when he, when he said, can you, can you, can he stay with you for the summer? I mean, you know, I was married to his sister at the time and he was now family. So I was going to take care of the family and um, also trying to stick to my word. You know, I mean, that was just the kind of belief system that I had and the mindset that I had. And fortunately, I mean, Michael is now 52 years old and I've, he's got, you know, doing very well and 
I've got two granddaughters from him, um, which is really good. But anyway, I, um, I'm kind of all over the map because there's just so many different things that I could talk about in terms of how I ended up getting here, but I don't like going into drunk logs, but there are significant things that occurred uh, in my journey that got me to where I'm sitting today. And, and the real thing was, is that the relationships were bad. Um, and I lost both of my parents within a two year period. Um, I didn't have a real good relationship with my father. It was uh, one that he was, I come to find out that I'm very much like him. Um, I consider myself a good provider, but I was never really a good father. Uh, I never really was, I was able to take care of the kids in the sense that they had clothes on their back, food in their bellies. They had insurance coverage. They didn't, there was nothing really that they went um, in needing because I made sure they had everything, but I wasn't really there to make sure that, that they had a father. Um, because I, I was working shift work and I had to make sure that I was making enough money to be able to provide for everybody. And by doing that for so many years and having so many kids, um, the relationship with my then spouse, my second wife, we started drifting apart. And this was like 10 years into the relationship. And the more that I said, you know, we're drifting apart. And I used to use the term of BC uh, before children. You know, we had a nucleus. It was it was she and I and we were tight and we did everything together. And it was kind of like you could finish each other's sentences because, I mean, that was we were just kind of like we were just like right there together. But when the kids came, it just started drifting further and further and further apart. And it got to a point where I felt like I was nothing more than a donor in a paycheck, um, which is a bad spot to be in um, for an individual that's trying to keep a family together. Um, and I started, I was working many hours, shift work. Um, my mother was really ill. She was diagnosed with uh, as a bipolar disorder. She had gone through, she had clinical depression. Um, spent many weeks in the, the psych ward in Fairfax Hospital. <clears throat> Went through a lot of con electrical convulsive therapy <clears throat> treatments. Um, <clears throat> And she was really sick for a number of years. She was in a nursing home. But anyway, I was trying to keep an eye on my folks. My mother was in a nursing home. My father was living at home. He had himself declared legally blind. And he was living in a house that was where I grew up. But um, And I was living like 50 miles away, working shift work, having all these kids, and still trying to stay close to my parents as well uh, in terms of trying to make sure their needs were met. So again, I had a lot of balls in the air, but my um, father ended up passing away in March of 2000. And when he did, he left us, he left me and my brother yeah, some money. And um, I looked at that as anger money because um, like I said, I didn't really have too much. My father and I didn't have a real good relationship. And he used to always hold the uh, will over my head. You know, you do what you do what I tell you to do, or I'm going to cut you out of the will. And I used to tell him, you know, I don't want your damn money. Just cut me out of the will now. I'm telling you, I don't, I don't need it. I don't want it if it's under those under those terms. And um, long story short, I ended up uh, pissing away a lot of money in uh, the year 2000 um, with online gambling, and um, 
I was just playing with this money that my father had left me and, and uh, it was like monopoly money. But Molson Ice was always there. I used to sit in my house and um, drink beer and play these these animated card games. It was actually Caribbean poker. I became very attached to Caribbean poker. Um, and I pissed away probably in excess of $25,000. And when my um, then wife found out about it, she was very angry with me because of course, you know, I could have used that money for the family. Um, and there's a whole nother story along that line, but I was kind of of the opinion that while my parents tried to help us when we were needing help, um, my spouse really didn't want any help from them because they didn't get along. And, um, I kind of looked at it like, you know, the money's good now they're gone. You know, my father's gone. Why in the hell is this money good now? You know, that's kind of the way I was looking at the money. But anyway, that didn't work out too well. So I, I um, came into the rooms in December of 2000, spousal ordered in, uh, not because I had a drinking problem, but because I pissed away all this money. Um, and that's when I came to Pine Grove and it was close to home. And I sat in that room for a year, um, not really thinking that I needed to change anything. I knew that there was problems, but you know, I, I wasn't ready to make a change and acknowledge that perhaps I had something to do with that. And alcohol might have something to do with that. But um, so I sat in the rooms at Pine Grove for a year. And that is my home group, by the way. Um, and I used to bake um, cupcake, cone cakes, actually, little ice cream cones. I'd put cake batter in them, bake them. And then I'd take them up there in these plastic trash bags and uh, or grocery bags and ice them, right? um for the meeting and folks loved them so i was a coffee maker and a cake baker for a year at pine grove and i really didn't participate much there but um in 2002 my mother ended up um her health declined rather rapidly and um i had the dubious honor of executing her living will which was something that was very difficult for me um and that also was one of the major drivers as to why I started looking at what is life all about? What am I doing? I'm in a bad relationship. This is my second bad relationship. Um, I feel miserable inside. Yeah, it looks like everything is working. Um, you know, I've got a house. The cars are running. I got fuel in the cars. The kids are fed. You know, all of that stuff is good. But I was freaking angry. I was isolating. I was... Um, I was not a happy individual. And I'll, you know, my, my former wife used to, my second wife used to say to me, Dusty, what, what makes you happy, Dusty? And I had, I couldn't answer that question. Sex made me happy. I mean, you know, that, that was always, um, that was kind of where I was at. You know, it, it's a matter of, of, I was come to find out that particular ism was, was, I think I was, I had more issues and problems with that from an emotional standpoint, physical standpoint, and just uh, sheer functional. Um, when they talk about the second part of the first step being life being unmanageable, um, that was that. Well, that was something that that um, I had to really focus on once I had to drink, put down the drink and the drugs, because that was more of a driver for anything. And it seemed like the other things that I was involved in uh, weren't really the priority. The priority was me trying to feed me feeling good. And at that point, sex was better than um, the drugs and the alcohol, even though the drugs and the alcohol were always there. So 
it was the lowering inhibition thing, the, you know, whatever you want to call it. But um, so that's why I say my drug of choice is more because I have, I'm insatiable for a lot of things. Um, but alcohol has always been a part of my story. But I ended up fi- um, going through with, with executing this or making sure that my mother's wishes were, were dealt with. Um, and I'll never forget being in the hospital um, contemplating because it was cyclical. You know, the doctor would say her white blood cell count's going up and, and um, things aren't looking really well. And then all of a sudden they go down but she still wasn't regaining consciousness. She had, I mean, she had Parkinson's disease. She had thyroid issues. She was a, a um, diabetes, right. And, and manic depression with I mean, bipolar that was, she had a team of doctors, everybody feeding her um, prescribing drugs and none of them talking to one another. Um, so she was catatonic for God. I don't know how long. And I used to look at this and thinking, you know, when she finally passed away and I was at a rock bottom, um, I, I started considering what I was going to counseling. I was on antidepressants going to counseling after she passed away in, in, uh, February of 2002. So it was almost, it was just beyond two years that, um, she passed away after my father. And, um, when she did pass away, I, I actually was out there doing what I like to call my own way of, uh, grieving and mourning. Uh, which was feeling sorry for myself and drinking and thinking about what the hell are you doing? And meanwhile, all the, the, the year that I spent in Pine Grove, listening to folks talk about what it was that they were going through and how they were dealing with things and being introduced to the 12 steps and understanding that, um, you know, potentially there's, there is a way out of here. I'll never forget. I'd get, you know, I'd have these folks were saying things and I, Penny was always in my ear. Penny actually was at my high school graduation because Penny and I were actually Penny's son um, and I used to party together in high school and we were in the same graduating class and Penny was actually at my gra- my high school graduation. So we have a, a different history um, from when I was younger, but also now that I'm uh, now that we're both moving on and becoming long timers, her more so than me, because uh, I never thought I'd live to see 30. But fortunately, I just turned 64 in August. And um, here I am paying the price for everything that I did. But I'm happy I'm still here. I, I want to be here today, whereas before I didn't give a flying foxtrot whether I was around or not. But um, so I came in in um, 2000, not for me. But in 2005, I did hit a bottom. I left. I remember leaving a counselor's office, and she was actually part of the program. She was trying to 12-step me as part of the um, counseling. Um, she, you know, she said, "Are you?" When I was leaving, she asked me if I was going to hurt myself, and I said, uh, "There's nobody that's worth me killing myself over." Um, you know, that was just my ego and pride. I'm like, hell no, I'm not going to hurt myself. What the hell are you talking about? But as I was driving home, it was kind of like a penny dropped. Um, And I thought, you know, you may not be sticking a barrel in your damn gun and pulling the trigger, but you're killing yourself. You're not happy. Um, You're dying inside. Um, It's really time that maybe you ought to see about making a change because life was just not, it was not good. And, um, I had a good friend of mine who actually is my partner now, Kate. She's, um, she was, we worked together and, um, 
she came over to the U.S. from the U.K. in uh, 2000. She stayed with my then wife, Kathleen, and I um, when she came over for a job interview, um, stayed a week or so, and then she went back over to The Rock and uh, came back for a house hunting deal because she accepted a position here um, with a company that was going to sponsor her on a green card process. Um, and she got a it's actually kind of funny because um, Kate came over and she was staying at the house with us over in Round Hill. And um, she went out one day to look for a house and she came back and she goes, I think I bought a house. And I'm like, what the hell do you mean? You think you bought a house? You either did or you didn't. She goes, well, I signed a contract and it's, you know, right over, in, it's right over in Maryland, not far from here. And um, as it turned out, she uh, wasn't going to be starting her job. Um, she wasn't allowed to be in the country until like 10 days before her job started. Like she was going to start her start date with the company that was sponsoring her. It was part of the green card process. But um, she goes, do you mind if I set something up and work it out to give power of attorney for you so that you can go to closing for my house? I will leave a check for you. And, you know, and I said, I don't have a problem doing that, but I have to ask my wife. And um, <laughs> when I did that, my wife, my wife basically said, you know, I don't, I don't care if you close on your girlfriend's house. And I'm like, you know, at the, at the time we were just really good friends. Um, but we were such good friends that we were always talking to one another. We were communicating. We were, and I think that at that, you know, when I, <laughs> when my wife at the time said that she goes, your girl, I said, look, she's a girl and she's a friend of mine. So if you want to call her a girlfriend, okay. But that's, you know, um, she's not my girlfriend. I mean, for Christ's sakes, I'm freaking married. You know what I mean? A marriage is not good, but you know, and I think that maybe my former wife had seen that, you know, there was something that I was a bit more lively and talking because I'm a very outgoing individual, you know, I'm very extroverted, but when I'm with people that are really close to me, I can become very introverted if things aren't, if I don't feel comfortable in that relationship, if you will. Um, so I ended up closing on the house. Um, and when Kate finally moved in here and I was really doing bad at this counseling session, if you will, um, she had said to me, you know, if you need a bolt hole, there's a room at the house because it was a three bedroom house and it was just her. She goes, you guys are going to kill yourself if um, you stay over there. So I was able to leave the environment that I was in, which was a toxic environment. Um, there was so much history and it was all bad history. Um, I left in January 15th of 05. I left the, I left the house that I was living in around Hill and I came out and stayed at Kate's place. And for a year, I tried to work on getting things together with my former wife. And, um, that's when I came into the rooms in April of 05, because it was 81 days since I, when I left the house in round Hill, um, and going to counseling and not drinking, um, well, I was kind of doing the, the marijuana maintenance and drinking now and then. I was still drinking, but, but I was eating antidepressants, smoking dope, drinking, and trying to figure out why in the hell life's not changing and getting better. Because I was under the impression that, you know, the doctors have that pad that they write scripts for and they give you pills because that's what Western medicine does. Um, but none of that shit was working. And um, I really was, I, when I was doing the counseling sessions, um, the family history came up and, you know, I really started questioning whether or not I may have clinical depression. Maybe that's part of my problem. And in order for me to be able to 
deal with this rightfully so because i mean i sat in the rooms for a year and there was a lot of seeds that were planted i need to be honest and not just honest um about the cash register honesty but honest with myself about where i'm at what i'm doing how i'm feeling and um that's when i decided that you know i'm going to give this thing a try i came into the rooms um like i said april 6th of 2005 and that was after i left that counselor session um saying that, you know, I may not be sticking a gun in my mouth, but um, I am killing myself. But it was 81 days from the time I left my wife till I till I hit that rock bottom. And it was those days in between that I was looking at saying, you know, I was away from that toxic environment and all this shit was still bothering me, you know, and granted, it's only three months, but um, shit still wasn't changing, you know, and I couldn't really be pointing the fingers at them and externalizing and saying, well, I'm doing this because of you and you're doing this and blah, because they weren't even in the picture. I mean, they were, but they weren't. There was no direct contact at the time. Um, so I ended up making a, ch- a decision for me to do this. Um, and since that time, it's been a long journey, but I have found that um, there is a lot to be said for alcohol is but a symptom. Um, I believe this, the answers to all of my problems turned out to be in the 12 steps. Um, once I started working them, um, for myself, for the right reason, uh, learning how to be, uh, I had to change my whole belief system. Bottom line is that I, I was very, I was terminally self-sufficient. That was what I believed I had to be. I had to take care of my own. I couldn't be asking for help. And the rooms gave me the opportunity to see that, um, you know, the other way out is to ask for help, not to hold things in. Uh, The more that I kept things secret, the sicker I got. So I'm a firm believer that you are as sick as your secrets. I used to get angry with my former wife because she didn't know how I was feeling when I was feeling bad. And I never told her how I was feeling. I mean, I remember waking up, not being able to sleep three o'clock in the morning, looking over at the bed, looking at her, just fucking sleeping. You know, I'm thinking, how could you be sleeping? You know, and I was so angry, you know, and it was like, if you don't let people know where you're at and how you're feeling and what you're thinking, um, you know, they really can't do anything for you. They can't help you. And it's difficult to, um, to understand that when you're caught up in all of this, the stuff that is just habit, you know, humans are creatures of habit and um, the misery that I had, was not good, but it was mine, you know, and, and that was my uncomfortable comfort zone. Um, and the more that I didn't let folks know where I was, the more I isolated and the more I isolated, the more I thought about stuff. And the more I thought about stuff, the more drinking I was doing. And it was this vicious cycle to where I drink, think and drink some more and then think and then drink some more. And none of it was healthy. So I finally came clean with the psychiatrist said, look, I got to be clean, but I've been lying to you for the last several years. I don't know why taking these antidepressants and smoking all this dope and drinking all this beer, why I'm not doing any better. You know, what's so it's time for me to come clean. Um, and the reason that I made that decision was because of my mother's condition and the clinical depression, because I knew that if I, if I was going to really be honest about what was going on. I had to be honest with everything and understand that what I saw my mother go through, I really didn't want to have to go through myself. Um, Fortunately, 
it turned out that uh, I had a lot of good participation with my my former wife, with Kate, uh, the psychiatrist, myself, the rooms. Um, I started getting to the point where I was realizing that um, I wasn't clinically depressed. Um, the majority of the problems of anxiety and depression that I had was because I was drinking, drugging, and you know, serotonin levels were so screwed up, and working shift work, and trying to keep all the balls in the air, and you know, when it started out recreationally making you have fun and then it turned into, oh, I just need this drink or smoke this joint because I just, you know, I just need to calm down. Uh, then it became a dependency. And then the dependency started getting more and more. I started brewing beer at home because, you know, the regular beer wasn't doing it for me. And I figured if I'm going to be spending this much money, I might as well brew my own. I had a nice uh, earth cellar in the town in the uh, house that I was living in. It was in an old Victorian in Round Hill. And I had cases of beer stacked up in the cellar. And it, all I had to do was go down the steps, Rolsch bottles, the pint bottles with the mason type uh, tops is what I used to bottle all the beer. And um, even that stopped working. And it was high alcohol content. Um, it stopped working. But again, I'm rambling on. I know Donna said that I can, I can talk as long as I like. I'm not even though this is a speaker meeting, if anybody has something they want to share, just jump in the middle of this. Cause I could keep going. And I, I know it's not all about me. I've learned that, but there's a lot of things that got me to where I am today that I think are valuable. At least they were to me. But um, anyway, I, I, um, I'm a one, two, three kind of guy. I have learned in the last 17 years that um, there is a God and I ain't it. One of my, early sponsors used to tell me that he had me every day get up. Uh, he says, when you look yourself in the mirror and you're brushing your teeth, you say that you are a God or there is a God and you ain't it asshole. You have to add the asshole in there. And that was part of the breakdown, tear down ego pride thing, right? Which actually helped me a lot because um, I'm not a Bible thumper, but I, the problem was, is that I was so self-absorbed and everything I did was because how, what am I going to get out of it? You know, there's got to be some kind of a return. I did a lot of volunteer works, fire and rescue, running calls in the middle of the night um, while I was working shift work um, in Round Hill for about 10 years. And, um, you know, I was supposed that was good. I was doing service work, but I resented every damn second of that, especially when it was 3.30 in the morning and I'm going out on a second run and I have to go to work that day, you know, and you don't sleep at night. Um, and when you're living on caffeine, nicotine and alcohol, then that's all. Um, your mind starts doing crazy shit when, you, when you're not sleeping at all and still doing that stuff. But um, I, can, I can definitely say that I'm very grateful that today it's not like that. I don't have, um, you know, I'm still, I, I have six kids. It's taken me a long time to rebuild relationships with the six kids. Um, I have um, a decent relationship with both of my ex-wives, um, which I think is important because it keeps, it keeps, it allows me to have peace, right? I mean, I, I, I work with a lot of guys uh, who have been, are going through what I've gone through. And um, they, I, they have said to me, I don't understand how in the hell you could do that. I don't understand why in the hell I did my will and I had my former wife in my will. And, and they're like, what the hell? Even the attorney said, man, I wish I had an ex-husband like you, you know, but I'm, I'm like, you know, 
she's the father of my kids. You know, I mean, I, I, and a lot of that was guilt, you know, that I felt bad about the way that I had treated the entire family because of what I was doing. Um, and those are the kinds of things too, that I, that I learned over these 17 years and going through the steps, the situation with my mother, the reason that I was having such a hard time trying to make the decision to do what she wanted to do. She put it in black and white. It's what the nurse said. It's all right here. All you have to do is tell us to do it. Um, was that I was afraid that I wasn't going to be able to deal with me making that decision. Right. And it's those kinds of things that create and fed my insecurities. And I know in the fourth step, when we're talking about going through all the things that to identify the character defects or the isms, as I call them, we're going through the same things that I was getting eaten up with, you know, the insecurities, whether it was with sex, whether it was financial, whether it was why you have so many resentments. I had resentments big time, but it was all because things weren't working out the way that I thought they should, or I wasn't getting what I thought I should be getting, or I just had a different view on life. And if, if, as I've heard it said, if everybody had a 12 step, we'd all be happy. You know, if they all had a 12 step program, everybody be happy. But all of those little one liners, you know, to thine own self be true. When I first came in here, I was thinking, what the hell? I was true to myself. I mean, what do you mean to thine own self be true? You're damn right. I was at your expense. You know, I'd take whatever the hell I wanted if you had it and you weren't willing to give it to me. Um, if it made me feel good, I was all up in it. Um, you know, I, I just, you were the most important person in the room, you know, of course I am. You know, I mean, when we first come in here or we're not, you know, it takes a lot to come in to a room. It's scary as shit to begin with, um, for the first time. But when you hear somebody say you're the most important person in the room, that kind of, you know, it's, it's, how do you take that? You know, because I mean, if your ego is inflated, you're feeling like, well, of course I am. But then again, everybody's looking at you and you're like, ooh, you know, you, you got these defense mechanisms up and you don't want to be the spotlight. You know, so I mean, it's all of those kinds of things that create the insecurities that I found uh, were really feeding all of my addictions and my behaviors of the addictions. I honestly didn't have any emotional sobriety. You know, it's been said in the in the in this program that the first year is physical, um, which it is. If you put down the drink and the drugs, you need to get your body back into a normal routine, um, sleeping, eating right, getting the right calories. I mean, I'm type two diabetes, diabetic. So if I if my sugar gets off, I get angry. You know, I mean, I, I get real testy. I get um, my my patience and tolerance goes right out the window. Um, and, and knowing that it's much like reading the doctor's opinion, understanding how alcohol works, you know, but the first year being physical, um, the second year being emotional, I think I was stuck on that second year for about three years because I had no emotional stability whatsoever. Um, and then they say the third year is spiritual. And I guess that's for the, uh, the overachievers to be able to do that in three years. Cause it took me a while. I guess I was a slow starter, but, um, it did uh, finally kick in. I realized today that um, no is a complete sentence, that I don't have to do everything that everybody thinks that I should be doing. I don't have to do everything that, you know, I don't have to, I don't give a shit about what people think about me anymore because my, um, my self-esteem has been increased to a point where I'm comfortable with myself. And I wasn't like that 
before I came into these rooms. Um, but the 12 steps following in that process and maintaining one, two, and three uh, on a daily basis, um, understanding that that is the strong foundation for my program is understanding that I have a problem. The problem is me for the most part, but I also, I may be the problem, but I could also be the solution. And if I can be the solution, if I just stick to the decision that I made in the third step and that's stay out of my own way, you know, if folks say, oh, you get it, you know, um, turn it over. And that's usually a step that folks get stuck on, um, you know, because of the God thing. And, and you know, I'm, I'm here to say that, you know, you, you are not God. That's, that's what really started really working for me. And again, a higher power can be anything. Um, it just can't be you. And that's what I learned. And I, every day I, I uh, follow with that mentality. And that was part of the belief system that, or that is the belief system that I live under today, as opposed to what I was living under, that I had to do everything on my own and take care of everybody that I was responsible for. Responsibility means a whole different thing to me today. You know, being responsible doesn't mean uh, making sure that everything is provided for. It's, it's doing the right, doing the right thing. And it was difficult in early sobriety to understand when they say, oh, do the next right thing. Well, for who? You know, I mean, you stop and think about it when you're twisted and you're thinking all about yourself and you say, do the next right thing. I think I think we do a disservice to newcomers if we just tell them that we don't explain to them that that's not the next right thing for you. Uh, and what you're thinking about right now, it's, it's, you know, doing the next right thing, yes, for you, but understanding and making that distinction of what the difference is, because that's, a, that's the perspective shift, you know, when they start talking in the literature about having a profound psychic change, it's by changing the way that you think, and when you change the way you think, it changes the way you speak, when you change the way you speak, it changes the way you act, and the way you act is going to go into different behaviors that are going to become who you are. Um, and I was an asshole when I was drinking and drugging, you know, I mean, I was arrogant. I never thought I was, um, I never thought that I was self-centered, but I was everything that I knew that I wasn't, I turned out to be. Um, and that was a rude awakening, but so the answers are in the steps. And, and like I said, I, I think that, um, I have learned over the last 17 years, it's, it's interesting to be able to identify and see I have a brother who is one of us that uh, he keeps it very green for me because uh, we talk every week and sometimes we talk multiple times during the week. And every time I talk to him, it's just kind of like I hold the phone out here and it's kind of like that blah, 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 blah spot. You know what I mean? The dog cartoon, right? Where it's, it's like, but I understand where he's coming from and I know what, and he's miserable and he's miserable because he's in a bad spot and he's in a bad spot because life's happening to him. And he's choosing to do certain things like, you know, the state of New York's out to fuck me, you know? I mean, that's basically the mindset, you know? And I'm like, Skip, you know, there's many people that have uh, more problems than you and I. And the response is, well, you know, I really don't give a shit. And therein lies the problem. I mean, that's why I found that I was stuck is because I was playing the victim, volunteering to be the victim. And not actually looking at trying to be part of the solution by changing the perspective and how I was looking at life and how I was looking at things. I had to ask myself instead of saying, you know, why me? Everybody's why me? Why not me? 
You know, there, there's, there's more folks out there that have it a lot worse off than I do. And just because it's happening to me, yes, it's painful. Yes, it's mine. Yes, it's, it's personal. But I am one of many that this is happening to. I am not unique, um, especially no longer terminally unique. And, you know, the more I started thinking that way and the more I started looking at others, doing things for others and not expecting something in return, that's the kind of service work that they're talking about. You know, and they say that the, the triangle is the unity, right, uh, the service work and recovery. And I really think that the that that foundation, I mean, the pyramid is one of the strongest construction foundations there ever. I mean, it's 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 solid. Um, but doing service work is great because it gets you out of yourself, but you should be doing the service work for the right reason. And that's to get, not expect anything in return, but doing it because it makes you feel good, you know, and trying to get to that point is what the steps helped me get to. Um, I got tired of listening to being told you have a problem and you need to fix it because nobody ever really told you how to fix it. Uh, but the 12 steps, basically tell you how to fix it if you're willing to go through it with an open mind and open heart and be willing um, to listen to others and say, you know what, maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe there is another way. Maybe my way is not the way, the only way or the best way. Um, you know, and, and that's how I started getting more compassion for other people. That's how I started learning how to forgive myself. Um, and I really couldn't get there um, until I got right-sized, I couldn't really think about any, any humility or any kind of, uh, forgiveness until I got right-sized and realized that it's not about me, that, you know, I am not the one that's supposed to be getting everything all the time, the way I want it. Um, Johnny Carson used to say late night. I remember when I was a kid, happiness is not getting what you want, but it's wanting, wanting what you have. And that used to make no sense to me. I'm like, you, what the, you know, what the hell are you talking about, man? Um, but today I understand that, you know, I used to say in college, no matter where you go, there you are. And today that's a different meaning to me. Um, you know, and it's just that kind of different lenses, different perspective. Um, and it's all not thinking of myself um, less uh, or thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less helps a lot. Um, because again, I am not the center of attention when I was an infant. Yes, that's, that's okay. I mean, infants are the center of attention and they need to be, um, there's reasons for that. But when you carry that over into your adult life, you become a pain in the ass to everybody that you come into contact with. But anyway, I think I ate up an hour, so we could take the next hour talking about it if you like, but, um, I really appreciate you letting me, let me, um, come and share my story with you folks. It definitely was a, a good experience for me. Um, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has saved my life. Um, it is something that, you know, to this day, um, there's seven words in the third step prayer that, uh, that, I, that I recite some, at some point in time throughout the day. And that is relieve me from the bondage of self. Because that is what is the problem, at least for this alcoholic, is me, is me thinking that me is, is, is it's either king shit or king baby, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you need to find that balance because when you're, when you're thinking you're up here, you're judgmental, you're, you know, pointing fingers, you've got the answers to everybody and you know, there's no humility in that. 
And I found that I can't find any peace if I don't have any humility. So with that, I'm going to shut up and thank you again. And I hope somebody got something out of that. Thanks, Donna. <laughs>